The year is 1199. King Richard I was dead, struck by a crossbow bolt during a skirmish, dying of infection. His replacement was his younger brother, John. And something weird happens around this time. Our records suddenly become much more scarce on the ground. The first decade of the 13th century is even more than the last decade of the 12th century, one where, compared to before and after, there is a scarcity of sources and eyewitness accounts. And this is bad, as this era was building to something really important. We have scattered fragments about the new king, and these do not paint a flattering picture. How so? Soon after his brother died, like days after, King John attended a mass overseen by a visiting bishop from England. John refused to take communion during the mass. This upset the bishop. He proceeded to deliver a long sermon in which he lambasted John for his behaviour. Three times during the sermon, John interrupted him, asking if he could hurry up as he was feeling hungry. Later, when he was invested as Duke of Normandy, John then upset the attendant clergy there by chatting openly with the men with him during the ceremony, and they were making each other laugh so hard that John giggled and dropped the ducal lance during the ceremony. Oddly enough, his succession was not a certain thing. There were two claimants to the throne, to the Grand Angevin Empire. I've read that under Norman law, John was next in line for the throne. But under the Angevin's law, the eldest child of John's oldest brother, a kid called Arthur of Brittany, was next in line for the throne. And because we're talking about France at the end of the 12th century, this meant instantly there was chaos. You had King Philip of France working flat out to undermine the Angevin Empire. You had nobles within it who saw an opportunity to break away from the dynasty who'd been ruling them. The end result was basically carnage. Anjou and Maine declared for Arthur, leading John's mother, the still-ticking and formidable Eleanor of Aquitaine, to lead loyalist forces, rampaging and destroying as she went, while John attacked, withdrew and attacked Le Mans again, tearing down the walls of the town, slaughtering many of the townsfolk and taking others hostage. I could provide hours of detail about the intricate nature of the war that was going on, but we need to focus on our main story. With his elderly mother then leading forces south to consolidate Aquitaine, John finally felt secure enough, holding Normandy, that he was able to travel across the Channel, meet up with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Hubert Walter, and was crowned as King of England in Westminster Abbey on the 26th of May, 1199. A new king upon the throne. And as far as we can tell, he did not giggle, talk, look bored, roll his eyes or complain he was hungry once, which for me shows personal growth, I feel. But his mind was focused upon France. He had inherited the empire of his father, Henry II. Technically, he should own more of France than the King of France. But while he inherited it, holding it would be a separate issue altogether. Hi there, my name is Saul and I would like to welcome you to Chapter 81 of The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city as it trundles its long way throughout history. We have finally reached the 13th century and start the cycle events that was to lead to what is genuinely, I feel, the wildest moment in the city's history. It's a chapter about trying to work out what John did or didn't do that was to cause London to react against him so badly. It's about trying to fill in that gap in the narrative. When we try to see 
how the king was seen at the time and not how he was seen later. Welcome then to chapter 81 of the story of London. All I have lost. The truth is, for the first part of the reign of King John of England, the land of England was the last thing on his mind. It was secure, it was nominally loyal, no one was openly rebelling, that's fine. No, the mind, focused and full political agency of John was upon his domains in France. More than any of the kings since William the Conqueror, John's attention and time were focused on his continental holdings. And yet this was not an aberration. As we discussed in previous chapters, the geopolitical centre of England lay in Normandy. Due to the split succession of William the Conqueror, the nobles of England tended to have one foot in Normandy and one foot in England. The kings William II, Henry I and Stephen had focused their political agency as best they could upon securing Normandy. Henry II had taken the throne of England because he dominated Normandy. Henry II had of course expanded upon this and had created the vast Angevin Empire that spread from the borders of the Spanish kingdoms all the way to the borders of Scotland. And for his son, Richard, after he'd returned back from wandering off on crusade, this was the principal focus of his rule. So in this respect, John was no different. But the three Angevin kings had all faced the same problem, however. Their equal and opposite, their rival and their nemesis, King Philip of France. In the next few years, Philip would be given the Roman title Augustus because of the victories he gained at the expense of the Angevins. Philip had been determined to make sure, as king, he would be the Lord of France and had waged war against King John's father and brother with single-minded determination since he'd been elevated to the throne. This war wasn't always fought in battle. It was fought in politics, church influence and via other methods. But right now, well, it was a war. The battle lines was drawn up pretty quickly. This was about control of Normandy to begin with, and the rest of France could solve itself afterwards. The border of Normandy was porous, with few natural defences. This had led the Dukes of Normandy to construct massive and elaborate castles at strategic points designed to defend the region. These castles were game-changers. Any invading commander would find it hard to secure something as basic as his lines of communication if he ignored these vast strongholds with their bristling garrisons which in turn forced invaders to besiege the castles, which then tied them down and allowed the other side to build up larger relief forces to attack them. War in Normandy, therefore, had become a very bloody game of cat and mouse, with the huge cost of building and maintaining these castles being offset against how strategically valuable they were. Now, most military forces at the time were a mixture of feudal levies and increasingly mercenary forces. The issue with feudal levies was that they could only serve for a fixed length of time, limiting the operational time frame for military commanders. Therefore, it had become the habit to employ mercenaries. 
The most popular name and popular type of mercenary at the time were the Brabacons. Originating from the territories of the Flemish, so roughly modern-day Belgium, the Brabacons actually by this stage came from all over Europe, with the Angevin kings recruiting men from a, as far away as the Basque region. Mostly they were well-armoured infantry, and Brabacons were also infamous for their brutal behaviours around civilians. History is replete with the tales of the casual looting, rapine and slaughter Brabacons unleashed upon the territories they were marching against, or upon the territories they were just marching through. But they were popular with the Angevin kings and also the Holy Roman Emperor. On the battlefield, at least, they were disciplined, focused and ferocious. And employing said mercenaries, they had become increasingly popular, especially with King John. Okay, with that in mind, let's look at how the war went. John was crowned king in May 1199. Soon after that ceremony, he was out of England and back in Normandy and took a defensive position on the eastern and southern Normandy borders. He regained the political support his brother had of the crucial Counts of Flanders and Counts of Boulogne, and he also regained the support of a man called William de Roche, which brought him Anjou. From King Philip's point of view, this war was slipping out of his fingers and it had nothing to do with the battlefield. John now held the balance of power against him, and he seemed to be growing with momentum. Philip had not objected then, as Pope Innocent III suggested a truce. And during that truce, in January 1200, it was agreed between John and Philip that the two men should have a proper sit-down meeting. So about a year after he took the throne, John travelled to see Philip. Between them, they organised the Treaty of La Goulette. This treaty was on paper a win for both sides. For John, Philip agreed to support his rightful claim to the throne of England and the lands his family had inherited in France, and cease his support for his young nephew, Arthur of Brittany, in return for a payment of about 30,000 silver marks, and for his 12-year-old heir to the throne to be married to one of John's nieces in Castilia, a union that John hoped would bring him and Philip closer together. For Philip, however, John agreed to no longer support the independence of Boulogne and Flanders, recognising them as vassals of the French crown, and this was in direct opposition to his brother's Richard's position. For many in the Angevin camp, John's willingness to do this was seen as betrayal of his brother's more aggressive policy, which had been paying dividends against Philip of France. It was in response to this deal that the nickname John's soft sword began to be used by nobles to describe their king. But John had peace. He had stabilised his borders. He had won. He would rule the same lands his father and brother had ruled. His inheritance was intact. The king travelled back across the channel to raise the 30,000 marks of silver from the piggy bank, sorry, sorry, England, and his mother, the still-going Eleanor of Aquitaine, travelled to Castilia, there to see her last surviving daughter and to select one of her granddaughters to marry the heir to the French throne. All was good. And yet, within only a few years, almost all of this was lost and undone. What happened? Well, John wrecked it. But to understand that, you need to understand his marriage status. You may remember a few chapters ago, I mentioned the time when Philip of France, as King of France, had said to the then 
Prince John, hey John, marry my half-sister the way Richard said he was, but then didn't, and I'll recognise you as the ruler of all your brother's French domains. And John had basically said, yeah, great idea, and had only stopped doing it by his mother interfering and basically saying, please don't do this, as he got as far as the English coast. What made that story all the weirder was that John was married at the time he took up this offer. He was married to the Countess of Gloucester. Now theirs was a strange marriage. They were technically cousins, twice removed, and this meant that while they had married back in 1189, when she was 16 or so, there were issues about the legality of that marriage under church law, and the Archbishop of Canterbury had said he didn't approve the marriage, and eventually the Pope ruled that he would allow the marriage, but the couple were forbidden to sleep together. It's all very odd. But by 1199, John had that marriage annulled on the grounds that, hey, we are cousins, and the Countess didn't object to that, and he was free to marry again. John, for his part, was in negotiations to marry the daughter of the ruler of Portugal. When, on the 5th of July, in the year 1200, King John arrived at Lus Ignan Castle, where he attended a large gathering hosted by Ralph de Lusignan, the local count. Ralph was the brother of Hugh, the new Count of La Marche, with whom John had come to make peace with personally, along with the other nobles in the region, many of whom had long traditions of rebellion and prickly relations with their overlords. Amongst the guests at this gathering was the daughter and heiress of Count Amet of Anguillum, a beautiful and precocious 12 or 13-year-old girl called Isabella. She was there because she was actually engaged to marry Hugh and had been sent to learn about the household of her betrothed. Her marriage had been deferred because, well, you know, she's bloody young, but she was in the household when King John came to visit. John turned up, took one look at this child, and was smitten. Quote, It was as if she held him by sorcery or witchcraft. Unquote, observed a shocked Roger of Wendover. Horrendously, the 33-year-old king made no secret of his burning desire for the young preteen, and her parents, aware that a union with the king would be far more prestigious than a marriage to a mere count, seemingly encouraged him. King John immediately broke off negotiations with the ruler of Portugal and informed Count Aimer that he meant to marry Isabella instead. The Count was only too pleased to give his consent to this. And now, just when things seem pretty creepy, they actually get worse. John sent the unsuspecting Hugh de Lesignan to England on official business, just to get him out of the way. Count Aimer then informed Hugh's brother Ralph that he needed his daughter to come home for a brief period, so she was sent. The girl arrived only to be ambushed and informed that a great marriage had been arranged for her. Supposedly, the young girl wept bitterly and protested loudly, but it was to no avail. On the 24th of August, John and Isabella of Anguillum were married by the Archbishop of Bordeaux in Bordeaux Cathedral. Roger of Wendover said the king was, quote, madly enamoured, unquote, with his bride. In her, quote, he believed he possessed everything he could desire, unquote. It was salaciously said that the king seemed chained to his bed, so hot did his lust for her burn. The English Benedictine monk, based in the French court, Matthew of Paris, 
displays the horror of the attitudes of people at the time back then when he said the new queen was, quote, a splendid animal rather than a stateswoman, unquote. And alas, contemporary observers said there was little evidence that the young girl returned her older husband's love. Within a few years, supposedly, and this has been contested by some historians, lust and endurance had degenerated into mutual hatred, and Isabella, who horrifically bore John five children over the next few years, had, according to that monk in Paris, turned into a, quote, evil-minded, adulterous, dangerous woman, often found guilty of crimes, upon which King John seized her paramours and had them strangled with a rope on her bed, unquote. By then, the French nobility, who had never forgiven her for jilting Hugh, were likening Isabella to Queen Jezebel. This is just awful. Now, there has been much talk made, when you read historical accounts of this, about the political advantages that could come from this union, or the possible political consequences that could come from this union. And John considering all of this, and, and rightfully so, nowadays we would... Look at the age of the girl in question, the age gap between her and her husband, and find this entire thing sick-making and disgusting, a feeling not helped by the attitudes of those around them at this time. But when you think about it, this does reek of John being John. Vino, self-obsessed, uncaring of consequence. He wanted to bed this girl, and so he did. Marrying her in France, the young girl was taken to England, and London got to witness the ornate and elaborate ceremony in Westminster Abbey, making her the Queen. But the issues caused by this marriage meant that her former fiancé did turn to violence, and he eventually appealed to King Philip of France. And King Philip of France demanded John turn up in Paris to talk about this, since technically, under the treaty John had just signed, Philip had oversight of him in his French possessions. King John was not about to answer the French king's summons, so he tried to argue his way out of it, and in the end, when he couldn't, he just refused to turn up. And the end result of that was, Philip said John had broken the Treaty of La Goulette, and so declared Normandy was his and his alone, the rest of John's French territories belonged to his nephew Arthur, and the war started again. Now, this was a huge campaign, and while tradition says John was a bad military leader, all the evidence seemed to show, actually, that he was quite decent. Certainly, he was a match for Philip of France. It's just that John, as a human being, was utterly inept, and his failures of personality, his inability to read a room, say, or to grasp a political situation, his self-obsessed nature and his brass manner, these all conspire to utterly undo any successes he gained in battle. I'll give you the best example. At one point, when John was hard-pressed fighting in Normandy, his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, moved to attack his southern flank. Arthur fell upon a small, not-in-the-best-condition castle, wherein was to be found a small garrison led by his grandmother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Arthur besieged his grandmother and demanded her surrender. She resisted. Unbeknownst to Arthur, his uncle King John had gathered up a large force and was riding to his mother's rescue. On the 1st of August 1202, John's forces fell upon Arthur and his supporters, and nearly every member of Arthur's company was captured or killed. This was a massive triumph for John, 
who not only captured his nephew Arthur himself, but also Hugh de Lassingan and more than 250 knights who'd been sent by the French king to support Arthur. These prisoners were all chained together and bundled in ox carts, paraded as trophies along the roads leading to the Loire crossing, before being incarcerated in prisons in England and Normandy. The Queen's jilted fiancé Hugh was imprisoned in chains in a tower in Cairn, and King John's nephew Arthur disappeared from public. This was a brilliant military victory, the most significant in John's career, and a testimony that he could achieve military greatness. It left him in an incredibly strong position, and even King Philip recognised that John now had the upper hand, and, quote, upset by the misfortune, unquote, he withdrew his forces from the Norman border, returned to Paris, where he, quote, remained inactive for the rest of the year, unquote. So, having secured all his territories in the year 1200 by political means, only to blow it all because he wanted to bed a 13-year-old by 1202, and then having pulled off a military masterstroke later that year and gained the upper hand in the field, again John allows his personality blow the advantage. How? Well, it's actually a combination of things, all of which are his fault alone. Well, we cannot be sure, and I offer no certainty in the following statement. It does seem that John is utterly convinced that he is now one, and that he can do whatever he pleases, and that Philip will offer terms. Why do I say that? Well, because of how he acts in the remainder of 1202. He begins treating his local allies with absolute contempt, creating a sense of resentment towards him. And he then scandalizes them and others by treating his prisoners terribly, many of whom died from the harsh conditions they were kept under. And then, in a long and somewhat lurid sequence of events, most modern historians give credence to the idea that John, while drunk one evening, decided to murder his nephew Arthur of Brittany with his bare hands and then have the body dumped in a nearby river. All of this was a PR disaster, but John didn't realise that because he seemed to be distracted with personal issues while this was going on. What personal issues? Roger of Wendover reports salaciously that John spent Christmas at Cairn, quote, feasting with his queen and laying in bed until dinner time, unquote. John genuinely comes across in the remainder of 1202 as being delusional, wrapped up in his own self-indulgent world of lust for his young wife and a strange inertia that kept him either tied to the bedroom or sure everything was going to be fine. He'd won, right? The following spring of 1203, Philip capitalised upon this massive PR disaster and marched unopposed into Normandy, taking town after town. John asked for a truce, Philip offered impossible terms. When messengers came in urgency to King John, begging him to lead his armies out and to attack Philip, the king shrugged and said, quote, Let him alone. Someday I will recover all I have lost. Unquote. By then, many of his disgusted Norman vassals were willingly transferring their allegiance to King Philip. By August, most of the eastern reaches of the duchy were in Philip's hands and he was only a dozen miles from Rouen. Roger of Wendover claims that even with the enemy at the gate, quote, King John was staying inactive with his queen at Rouen, 
so that it was said that he was infatuated by sorcery. For in the midst of all his losses and disgrace, he showed a cheerful countenance to all, as though he'd lost nothing, unquote. Late in September, John finally roused himself from his seemingly delusional state and tore himself from his bedroom and attempted to fight back. But his actions were hasty and above all, they all failed. And after these failures, many hitherto loyal Norman barons lost faith in him entirely and decided they would be better off under French rule. By the beginning of December 1203, the only parts of Normandy that remained in John's hand were the capital Rouen, the mighty fortress of Chateau Gilliard, which was currently being besieged by Philip, and the regions around the Channel coastline. Internally, these regions, deprived of firm leadership, were already degenerating into full-blown anarchy. Therefore, on December the 6th, giving word that he would soon return to the war-torn duchy, the king sailed for England with the queen and William the Marshal, according to Roger of Cogosal, quote, to seek aid and consul of the English barons, unquote, and to obviously raise more men and money. The English, however, had by now learned of John's ineptitude, his capriciousness and his many cruelties, and they had heard rumours about his alleged treatment of his nephew. Many lords, therefore, were not prepared to support him with a fast return. Some, with Norman estates, preferred to transfer their allegiance to Philip. John kept a miserable Christmas at Canterbury that year. It appeared as if the empire of Henry II was lost. But here we must be careful, because we today know that John will never reclaim the territory of Normandy, that this was the death of the Grand Angevin Empire of Henry II. But at the time, he didn't know this, and neither did Philip of France. Philip, for his part, had overrun the whole of Normandy and everywhere north of the fortress of Nuot and the seaport of La Rochelle. But there, Philip's victories came to a crushing halt. Angoulême was held by John by right of his wife, as Count Aymar had died in 1202, and south of Angoulême, the rest of the barons of Aquitaine were now rallying to John's cause. Please note, this was not due to loyalty to, or any personal like of King John, or to some grand respect of the Angevin connections of old. The Aquitanians were basically driven by a very pragmatic realisation. The barons of Aquitaine were somewhat independently minded, that independence was far more likely to be eroded by a triumphant king of France than by a distant king of England. So, let's support the distant king of England. Whatever the reasons, Philip Grand Victory had happened, but now the opportunity was laid open for John to reclaim the region. But with Normandy in enemy hands, this meant he would have to launch any such attack via his bases in Aquitaine. Any invasion of France could not sail easily over the Channel, but would need to land in the grand ports of La Rochelle and Bordeaux. And he planned for it. Supposedly, 28,000 marks of silver were raised in England and handed over to the brother of the Archbishop of Bordeaux to raise, it is said, a force of 30,000 troops in Gascony to be ready for the king's arrival. But this was not just going to be a military campaign. It was a political one. And here John was at a disadvantage. An expedition on the scale necessary for victory required the support of the barons of England. But Aquitaine meant nothing to them. It was only the king's concern, and it was only part of the political landscape because Henry had married the now dead Eleanor of Aquitaine. Normandy, however, was different. Normandy in England 
could not be easily disentangled from each other. The capture of Normandy by the French king hit many of John's vassals very hard. The Anglo-Norman baronage was in 1204 forcibly split into two. Those whose Norman interests were paramount did homage to Philip. Those who could not afford to jeopardise their English holdings had followed John back to England on the whole. Most of the men had been faced with a difficult choice and ultimately took some serious losses. At first, and indeed for many years, the losses did not seem to be permanent. It is true that both kings behaved nominally as if they were. In October 1204, John confiscated the English lands from those who remained in Normandy, and Philip sent letters out wherein he said those who followed John should come and make their peace with him or suffer confiscation. But John clearly thought the confiscations he was doing were temporary, and he was prepared to allow men buy the lands back, except those who had committed overt treachery. Here was an opportunity for making money and John took it, but he had no interest in making the division permanent. Similarly, Philip was prepared to allow the English barons a certain amount of latitude, as by doing so, this could erode support for a grand reconquest. It's not hard to guess the many discussions and arguments that went on in baronial halls and the king's council in the autumn of 1204. And... These debates and discussions crippled any effective response. For John, Normandy was only one of his losses and his first concern was the safety of Aquitaine. For the nobility of England and the barons, at least those who had Norman estates, and they numbered amongst the greatest and most influential, they were having none of this. Thus, whatever purpose John may have had to regain his French holdings, it was all caught up in a political miasma. The months slipped away and a grim winter closed tightly upon the nation. The rivers froze after Christmas and the Thames could be crossed by foot. The ground was so hard that no plough could bite into it until March. The winter sowings of crops were almost ruined by the cold. Herbs and vegetables were shriveled up. When spring finally came and an expedition to Normandy could be thought of, Corn was selling at the prices usually seen during a famine. Oats were ten times their normal price, and a few pence worth of peas or beans would cost up to half a mark of silver. The nation was in a sorry state, and London clearly was feeling sick of this king and any idea of foreign adventures. There are indications at this time, slight but palpable, that there was an estrangement between the king and the barons in 1204-1205 that went deeper than just disagreement over the tactics to use against Philip of France. The whole era is, alas, one of comparative darkness. The first part of the 13th century is a period where detailed records are few and far between. Yet some historians feel strongly that suspicion and discontent towards the king was a growing concern, like dark clouds on a clear sky at sea, a faint line on the horizon, but one an experienced traveller would cast a weary eye upon. John, you see, was never really at ease with the English powers. He was on friendly terms with few of them, and with almost none was he an intimate. It's not like he was miserable or devoid of humour. He kept a large and lively household that he liked to see was well-fed, well-dressed, and filled with fun. But his friends were servants, 
paid mercenaries, landless knights, young baronets, or even poor men he took up, cultivated, and trusted with his business. There were, of course, always barons about the court. They were there because duty called them to be, or they were there on private business, or they were there because the king was in the local vicinity and they figured they should show their face. But there were very few of them who were ever hailed as friends by this king. And added to this, John was a hands-on type ruler. They usually held belief that John was inept or lazy as a king. The actual evidence in reading the close rolls and the notes left in the Exchequer is that John paid very close attention to the running of England. Certainly no one's seen anything like it since Henry II died in 1189. John was also on the move all the time, acting more like an Anglo-Saxon king and dragging his household round and round the Midlands or down to Devon in the summer of 1204 and then up to Yorkshire in the spring of 1205. And wherever he went, he would sit with his justices hearing legal pleas. It was a privilege to have one's case tried by the king himself, and men would offer as much as 100 pounds for a royal audience. But John was quite content to take as little as half a mark and to judge the most ordinary of cases, as well as those where his personal intervention was essential to the litigant. His travels brought him for only short periods of time to Westminster. But when there, he would be found sitting in on an exchequer session, hearing the detailed accounts of the sheriffs presented for audit and intervening to make a change in the sheriff's actual liabilities. In November 1204, he initiated a very far-reaching reform of the currency that put coins of good designs and full weight into the hands of the people and actually inspired a new confidence in trade. John's government was alive and enterprising, and it owed much of its vigour to the zealous activity of the king himself. And while this sounds like me going, you know, John wasn't that bad after all, remember to each thing is his equal and opposite reaction. As the king was hands-on, so the king interfered in the conduct of the nobles of England, and a sense of erosion of their traditional powers, their rights, began to be felt. According to Roger of Howden, the Earls actually started making trouble in 1201 when John summoned them to join him at Portsmouth for the crossing to Normandy. They went instead to hold a protest meeting in Leicester and issued a joint statement saying that they would not cross, quote, unless he restored to each of them their rights, unquote. John came at them swinging and actually seized several family members as hostages. The barons duly came to heel but changed only their public attitude towards the king, their feelings, their sense of having issues with John did not change. The sense of grievance remained, even with the war ongoing. In the early months of 1205, England was threatened with invasion by allies of the French king. King Philip had gained the support of the Count of Boulogne and Henry, Duke of Brabant. He seemed intent on sending them and their forces across the channel, with him following up a few months later. I mean, would that have actually happened? It's actually unlikely, but the fear of this and the rumour of this infected England that winter. John suddenly began looking for reassurances of loyalty. At a council in Oxford in March of that year, the barons took an oath, quote, that they would render him due obedience, unquote. But they demanded a quid pro quo and compelled John to promise, quote, that he would by their consul maintain the rights of the kingdom inviolate to the utmost of his power, unquote. Here, we see embers of a later fire that would rage across England, the fire that would lead to the Magna Carta. Remember, before the reign of John, during the reign of Richard, 
The nation had been crippled with high taxation beyond compare. We had seen Fitzosbert's wild rebellion against this suddenly escalate into a full-scale war of words between the residents of London and the Archbishop of Canterbury. This was a nation sitting on a powder keg, even if most folks were not aware of it at the time. Philip's invasion was believed unexpected, and it even threatened to do so all the way back in 1193, and mindful of the possibility now of desertion by his barons, and maybe he'd been informed that what had taken down King Ethelred Unred, or what had taken down King Stephen, had never been defeat in battle but withdrawal of the support of the landowners and the people of England, John took steps to prevent that happening in January 1205. He demanded a vow of loyalty and fidelity from every adult male of the population, and he placed the entire kingdom into a state of emergency. Traditionally, all able-bodied freemen were expected to turn out for the defense of the homeland. But under John, he insisted on every male over 12 years of age, quote, from the greatest to the least, unquote, entered into sworn association, quote, for the general defense of the realm and preservation of the peace, unquote. Constables were appointed to run these new militia, but really, more importantly, was as well as preparing for external assault. John's fear of internal subversion runs throughout this edict. After all, the oath was against, quote, foreigners and against any other disturbers of the peace, unquote. Simply put, anybody who failed to take the oath without a reasonable excuse was to be seen as an enemy of the king and the kingdom. Here it is. It really does appear that John feared internal threat as much as external threat in the winter of 1204 and 1205. The royal officers along the south and east coast were alerted and instructed to allow no ships to leave port or to sail the waters of their jurisdiction without written permission of the king. The invasion never came. But John still wanted to reclaim his territories. Offence was much better than defence. By the end of March, John met with the English nobility and got them to agree to punitive strike. Orders were issued to the sheriffs of England on the 3rd of April that a tenth of the night service of every shire attend the king fully equipped at London on May the 1st, 1205, quote, ready to go in his service wherever they should bid them and to remain in his service in defence of the realm as might be necessary, unquote. One tenth of the entire fighting class of men was to serve him. It was still a ferocious force gathering in London, but that would take more than a few months to organise and John's plans grew as did his ambition. John prepared two forces. The first was a small mercenary force destined to sail into Aquitaine and attack north. But the second larger one was to leave Portsmouth and their target was Normandy. John planned a twofold attack upon Philip from the north and from the south. And throughout that April and May, England was bristling with activity. The historian Warren describes what followed in clear terms, quote, the king's busy officials had never been busier, marshalling the resources of the country for a gigantic effort. A barrage of royal writs issued from the chancellery, covering everything from the building of great ships to the collection of nails for horseshoes. Around the coast, workmen were impressed to build galleys or convert commandeered merchantmen. Along the roads to Southampton and Dartmouth, carts trundled, laden with bacons, venison, hurdles, quarrels for crossbows, wool for sails, 
and barrels of money for everything. From royal castles all over the country, save the vulnerable frontier areas, the king's hard crossbowmen set out for a preliminary muster of land forces at Northampton, unquote. This was a massive gathering of men, larger even than Richard's crusade in 1190. Something like a quarter of the year's revenue was spent on military and naval preparations alone. But this force, it never sailed. And why? Well, reading between the lines, the one thing seems certain. The impression we get is that John was at odds with his barons on the eve of this great expedition. The basic fact of the matter is they did not want to go. There was solid reluctance. If he was aware of this reluctance, John chose to ignore it and went on with his preparations until all he waited for was a favourable wind and then he was going to go. And at this point, the only two men who had the courage to speak frankly to him were the Archbishop of Canterbury and William Marshall. These two men came to him and sought to dissuade him from embarking and they used every possible argument they could to convince him. But no matter what he said, John seemed committed and when that happened, apparently the two men fell to the ground and grasps his knees, quote, swearing that for certain, if he would not listen to their entreaties, they would forcibly detain him, lest the whole kingdom be thrown into confusion by his going, unquote. Weeping and wailing, apparently, from frustration and shame, still arguing and protesting, John was practically dragged off to Winchester, where his counsellors thought, perhaps, to make him change his mind. It failed, and the next day he was back at Portsmouth, where apparently the, the sailors and common soldiers were proud to serve him and were loud in their indignation of the barons. Two cheers of triumph, John boarded the Royal Gallery with a few companions and cruised up and down the channel, but after three days and the weather being against him, finally he was convinced of the impossibility of landing in Normandy and put into Dorset and called this entire expedition off. But his ambitions were still not dulled, and he was determined to return to Aquitaine at least. Money was spent during the winter months to have eight large transport ships made for the king's use. In January 1206, a mission was sent with a cargo of treasure to shore up the king's interests with his supporters out in Aquitaine. The remarkable thing is, is that when the king himself finally did set sail for Aquitaine in the early summer of 1206, Quite a few nobles did go with him. Now, no contemporary writer actually explains why this was. The secular events of the year are treated fleetingly, if at all, in English records. So we really do not know the full story behind that invasion of 1206. We do know that on June the 7th, the fleet put into the great harbour of La Rochelle. This was currently a frontier town that had been defending itself against the king's enemies for many months. But his arrival was a signal for a massive show of support by the barons and nobles of Aquitaine, and his vassals from that region flocked to his banner. John, however, kept his head. This was not the time for a full-scale campaign against King Philip, so he launched a series of raids upon Philip's territory. Philip, panicked, gathered his armies. He marched south, but was wary of attacking John, and John didn't want to push his luck. So both kings were ready for a truce and concluded one on the 26th of October to last for two years. The situation was frozen as it then existed. Each king was to retain the allegiances that he held 
for the two-year period, and any dispute between them was to be settled by a true supervision committee of four barons jointly appointed by the two kings. And so the upshot of it all was ultimately he merely held on to what he still held. He never reclaimed Normandy. There were other issues to be addressed still. His barons, while coming with him, still harboured great resentment towards him because John was John. And it doesn't help what happened next. And here I must confess that I, as narrator, am going to simply summarise even this simplified version of events. The aim of this podcast is to talk about London. And while London is missing from our narrative during this episode, except for two smaller moments coming up, we have to move along in our ride just to explain the context of things. Following this truth was Philip Augustus in 1206, John concentrated on England and on the fine art of raising and hoarding cash. He targeted everyone, nobles and townsmen, Jews and the church. He used any and every means he could. He outdid Renalf Flambard and William Longchamp when it came to raising money. He was astonishingly successful. He doubled royal revenues and more. By 1212, it is said he had accumulated a vast cash hoard of around, or at least, £132,000, which he held in coin in a handful of castle treasuries around the country. One of the principal sources of John's wealth was his highly aggressive policy towards the church. English kings had all made a big thing about their traditional authority over the English church. John was no exception. But he found himself confronting a formidable opponent in Pope Innocent III. Innocent was more or less of the same age of John. He'd become Pope only a year before John became king, and he and John were both as stubborn as one another. A clash between the two men was kind of inevitable. It came over the succession to the Archbishop Frick of Canterbury. Hubert Walter had died in 1205, and John wanted the then Bishop of Norwich to take the position. Innocent III, however, wanted to appoint a man called Stephen Langton, the most intellectually distinguished Englishman of this era. That in itself wasn't bad, but Langton had spent his entire academic career as both a student and a teacher in Paris. Langton was seen as King Philip's creature. His brother was on Philip's payroll, and Langton had stood high enough in the king's favour to have been given a prebendary position of Notre Dame Cathedral, which actually gave him a house as well as an income. Innocent III had chosen Langton probably because he'd met him when he was a student in Paris back in the 1180s. In 1206, therefore, he summoned Langton to Rome and made him a cardinal. And the following year, he persuaded a delegation of the monks of Christchurch Canterbury to elect Langton Archbishop. John hit the roof when he heard, and he told the Pope he would not accept this lackey of the French king running the church in his country. Innocent replied by praising Langton's abilities and then warning the king bluntly that it would be dangerous to, quote, fight against God and the church in this cause for which St. Thomas, that glorious martyr and archbishop, recently shed his blood, unquote. Yep. Innocent raised the shade of Thomas Becket against the new King of England. But John didn't even blink. 
The dispute swiftly escalated into a full-scale confrontation between the King of England and the Pope in Rome. Both sides played tit-for-tat. John confiscated more and more church property, Innocent retaliated by imposing increasingly severe ecclesiastical penalties, first laying an interdict in 1208, where no religious ceremonies were allowed to be conducted, and then excommunicating John in person in 1209. The spiritual loss to king and country was possibly incalculable, but the financial benefit to John was staggering. John, like not a few other contemporary rulers, decided that he was happy to balance the genuine gains to his purse against the possible existential risks to his immortal soul. And how big were those financial benefits? Well, the best contemporary estimate puts them at about £60,000, which was the equivalent to two years' gross annual revenue. With wealth beyond the dreams of previous kings of England, and an apparently iron grasp on both the church and state in England, John turned outwards once more. Pretty sure he wouldn't get the support to invade Normandy, he began a showily aggressive policy towards the whole of the Celtic fringe. He imposed brutal discipline on the Anglo-Irish barons, he carried out the Anglo-Norman conquest into the heart of North Wales, and he disposed of the succession to the Kingdom of Scotland as an unchallenged overlord. This was the crisis in the land, the tensions both within and without. This shadowy king, John, emerges as capricious and led by his lust in some respects, and yet brilliant at gaining money and also using it well in other respects. John remains an enigmatic character in many respects. But as for London in this time? Well, we know two things for sure during all of this. Firstly, in 1209, the stone version of London Bridge was finally completed. It had taken a while. The brains and the passion behind the project, the priest, Peter of St. Mary's Cold Church, its architect and project manager, had alas died in 1205. But here, now, it was done. And it is finally, from now on, that that picturesque medieval ye oldie London Bridge finally enters the story of London. It's to remain with us for many years to come and almost immediately became one of London's most defining landmarks. It's also worth keeping in mind that it was always more than just a bridge. It was part of the fortifications of London, with the Southwark side being a solid stone barbican with the massive doors and portcullis, and afterwards came a drawbridge, and after that a second gate. The completion of London Bridge was ultimately a staggering feat of human skill mixed with stubborn tenacity. The piers of the bridge effectively reduced the width of the river from 900 to about 500 feet, and the resulting rapids caused by these piers were to become a hazard to shipping from then on, and they became so dangerous at times that people being ferried along the river had to disembark at the bridge, walk round it, and then take another boat on the other side. Almost immediately as well, the Eskivins and Aldermen of London instantly permitted the building of huge stately houses on both sides of the bridge, whose massive bulk, several stories high, overhung the bridge itself and ended up being propped up by diagonal beams. And this started before the bridge was even complete. The records of King John in 1201 include the, quote, rents and profits of the several houses which shall be erected upon the bridge, unquote. 
The chapel dedicated to St. Thomas Becket was on the ninth pier, in which Peter of Colchurch himself was buried and was sufficiently important as a church to have two priests and four clerks attached to it. And we conclude this chapter in the year 1211, when another great city work was begun, one that makes sense given not just the fear of foreign invasion, but the growing paranoia of the king. In 1211, London's Eskivins ordered the redigging of the protective ditch outside the city walls. The original had existed since Roman times, and it is likely that it was in a poor condition. So around the year 1211, work began to remake it. It was recut to a width of somewhere between 80 and 90 feet, and at its most southwestern point, east of Blackfriars, it was open to the River Thames. London's walls may have been old, but this ditch returned London to its old, original role. It was reborn again as it had first been in Alfred's day, a bastion, a stronghold, the kind of place you did not attack lightly. But here we are, in the year 1211. King John has been on the throne nearly a dozen years, and London right now with its rebuilt stone bridge and new ferocious defensive ditches for the first time since Alfred's days, rechristened not just as a city, but as a fortress. It had regained that which was lost. And it should perhaps come as no surprise when I say the ferocity of those new defences were about to be put to use. And I will leave it there. Thank you for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed this episode. The story of London exists due solely to listener support, and I would like to gratefully thank the subscribers who have kept us going for another month. If you find this podcast entertaining, and I'm very grateful if you do, and if you can help, you can support the podcast via the membership page over on the Buy Me A Coffee site, or make a one-off contribution there. And if you don't have the funds or do not wish to do that, then I'll be humbled simply by you leaving a nice review or giving this show five stars, which impresses the algorithms that dictate how much attention a podcast gets. That's all from me. I'll be back again for Chapter 82 of The Story of London as we start the cycle towards the Magna Carta. Thanks. Thanks.